Open your Bibles, if you would, to Joshua chapter 5. Let's pray, then we'll open God's word together. God, lead us in your word, we pray. Guide us by its truth. Help us to believe it like we sang about. And may it change our lives as we leave these doors and live in our community where you've called us to be your holy people, looking for lots of ways to do good in our community, to share Jesus, to love others, to live peacefully. God, would you guide us in your ways through your word? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're in the third sermon in the book of Joshua on victorious faith. We started in Joshua chapter 1, verse 9, where God's word calls us clearly to follow him courageously. Have not I commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And then God proved that he's with us through his encouragement that we looked at last week at the end of chapter 1, personally, in chapter 2, unexpectedly, in chapter 3, powerfully, with the crossing of the Jordan River. And if you look back at the very end of chapter 4, right before chapter 5, God's word says this in verse 23, For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Do you know God is at work everywhere we go? He's at work in our families. He's at work in our communities. He's making his name known. And he wants us to live in awe and respect and fear of him. And so that's really set the stage to where we come to in Joshua chapter 5. And it's no surprise as we read verse 1 that all the people around have heard the news about how God backed up the Jordan River 20 miles. That, that was, that's front page story stuff before the printing press, isn't it? Right? I, I wonder how good the grapevine of communication was uh, back in those days. I figure every city had the person who knew. You know, like every church has the person who knows. If you need to find out what's going on. And uh, word spread quickly. But look at how people responded. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, both sides of the river, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. There's a, there was a collective uh-oh that happened all around as God showed up. And so we want to look at what's become a very famous story um, but, but one that's become somewhat controversial uh, the, the, as the Bible recounts the Israelites' victory at Jericho. And um, that's what we're going to look at this morning. It's in chapter 6, but I don't want us to miss what happens in chapter 5. Uh, before we get there, I wonder if you've ever had a once-in-a-lifetime experience. You ever had one of those? One where maybe as it's happened or when you were done, you kind of looked around and said, we may never get to do this again. This is incredible. We went to Hawaii in August, and I know for a lot of people that's a once-in-a-lifetime trip. We've actually gotten to go there twice in the last four years, so my son thinks it's normal. That's a problem. Um, <laughs> but, but we have uh, friends, uh, fellow pastor Kevin Fuku, who is here, and his family that were connected to in Hawaii, so got a, a good excuse to go. Um, but we went and were able to see what God is doing there and encourage them, but we also got to spend a little family time. And I got to play golf, which I told you last week I really enjoy. Uh, at the Royal Hawaiian Golf Course. And, and they compare it to playing golf at, in Jurassic Park. There's no dinosaurs, thankfully. 
Um, but it is just incredible, tropical and beautiful, and, and the, the interior of Hawaii with its amazing, you know, um, backdrops. It was tremendous. Outside of the fact that there was absolutely no place to hit a ball outside of the fairway that you wouldn't lose it. Um, so I think we went through like 25 golf balls, uh, and that was, not all those were terrible shots, but if it was 10 yards off the fairway, it was in leaves and brush, and it was a goner. Um, but it was just a tremendous experience. Presidents have played there, and it was really, really cool. And uh, so it's something I'll remember for a long time. And then for a few days, we got to stay right on Waikiki Beach. And so there's a little picture. Uh, they put us on, I think it was the 34th floor. Is that correct? What floor was it? Yeah, it was up there. And I know that because when we got on the first glass elevator ride to the top, uh, Colleen grabbed the handles and, <laughs> and like grabbed us. And, you know, she had like four mom arms kind of protecting everybody. And uh, every time we'd ride up to the 34th floor, you know, and then she saw that our, our wall was all windows. There was more fear, right? If you look right above Tim, there's a little latch that opens, and the whole thing just opens up to fresh air on the outside, and we were strictly forbidden from opening that window. <laughs> uh, Colleen had visions of Tim climbing up on the table and jumping and finding out he couldn't fly, you know, all those things. But, uh, man, just incredible. And you've probably had some, some of those sort of moments in your life where you've just been like, man, this is, what God, this is a good gift from God that I'm enjoying that, that I may not ever get a chance to enjoy again. It's a once-in-a-lifetime experience. You know, the people of Israel actually experienced two once-in-a-lifetime experience, experiences pretty quickly together. We, we looked at the story of the Jordan River parted, and that's one that kids and parents and grandparents would talk about for a long time, weren't they? I mean, God told them, take some rocks out and don't forget this. But then it seems just a few weeks later, we come to the story of Jericho, Tim told me this week that this is his second favorite story in the Bible. So, what's your first? He goes, David and Goliath. Love that one. But this is a, this is a profound moment. And, and one that ought to encourage and excite us. But it's also one that ought to give us pause. And so I want to look at that this morning. Uh, we talked about Joshua 1.9 already. This is, this is really a couple chapters about faith victorious. I'm so thankful for Andrew and how he prepared our music this morning. I had kind of an idea and a track that I had sent his way, and he tweaked it, took it a little bit of a different direction. I was like, that's way better. And uh, man, it just guided our hearts into the victory that we have in Christ. But it's interesting that we often skip the lead up of chapter five. Look at the lead up to Jericho, and it starts with this holy preparation. Look at verse two. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at that place. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war who had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt, though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach from you, 
And so the name of that place is Gilgal till this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain, and the manna ceased the day after they ate the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. And unless we kind of blow by those verses that we read, there's, there's a change in eras. Since the Exodus, the people of Israel have been on this journey. God delivered them and then they wandered and God brought them right to the edge of the promised land and they said, nope, we're not going there. And so God sent them back into the wilderness for 40 years. And he wiped out that whole generation that would not believe. It's an interesting thought as we talk about the, the destruction at Jericho, that God is not partial. God does not doom certain people and not others. God's, God's judgment is, is without favoritism. And so a whole generation died off and this generation's ready to enter the promised land and God says there's actually something you need to do first. You need to prepare yourself. You need to set yourselves apart. And, and the, the sign that God had given to the Jewish people was circumcision. Uh, again, like last week on Rahab, if you need to know about that, you talk to your parents, okay? Um, but, but it was a way that God set his people apart. And it's interesting to me that when we, when we think about these two stories, there, there's a story of, of how God set his people apart, and then there's a story of them giving themselves to worship him. That, that there's a readiness among God's people for what God's about to do. I think I would say it this way. There's... There's a consecrated focus of God's people. They set themselves apart for holy living. It's not lost on me that this, this holiness was uncomfortable. That they were uncomfortably different from everyone else. They were markedly different, if you want to say that. And then that God's people, were set, they set time aside for holy worship. They set themselves apart for holy living, and they set time aside for holy worship. And don't miss this. Anytime God's people gathered to worship him, it was inconvenient. See, God had set aside for them Friday evenings and all day Saturday to rest and worship. And then he had set aside three specific feasts every year when all the people of Israel were supposed to leave home, come to Jerusalem, and rest and worship God together for, for like a week, for a more extended period of time. And, and in this moment, God's people follow God's plan. They set themselves apart. It's also interesting to me that the people of Israel, once they get into the promised land, are always trying to find better options for worshiping God. Like, man, that trip to Jerusalem is too far. Maybe we can build a holy place in a different place that's closer to my neighborhood. Man, we kind of like some of these other gods that the people of our, 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 uh, our neighbors have, so maybe we can include them in our worship. There's, there's always like this corrupting influence in our human hearts, isn't there? And we're really good at making excuses for ourselves and explaining why for our family, like that really doesn't work. But you know, God has called us to set ourselves apart for him, to live in holy ways that are uncomfortable. And doesn't our own, you know, flesh, our own nature just war against that? We so desperately want to fit in. We don't want our lives to look that different. By the way, don't be weird for weirdness sake. But God has called us to live differently. He's called us to be people set apart for him. 
It's okay if people think it's weird that you show up here at 9.30 on Sunday morning. It's okay. Man, I never go to a church that's that early. Okay. Man, I just love, you know, watching BYU beat Utah at midnight, and there's no way I could get up for that. By the way, talk about a once-in-a-lifetime experience. (laughs) Anyway, don't give a hard time to your BYU friends today. Let them enjoy it. It's been a long time, and it'll probably be a long time. But I'm struck as I read this chapter that our desire to see God work in big ways is often a lot bigger than our willingness to let God make us holy. It can be inconvenient to set aside time to worship God and rest. You should still do it. It can be uncomfortable to be different in a culture that is increasingly godless, isn't it? But God wants us to be a holy people, a people set apart for him, eager for good works, pushing each other that direction. By the way, I hope it is never the case that Gospel Hope Church is a place where someone who's trying to follow God in holiness, we're the ones discouraging that. Would we be the encouragers of each other as we seek to follow the Lord? These people set themselves apart, and it's no accident what happens next. Look at verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him, I probably would have gone the other way, Joshua went to him, And said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. By the way, don't miss that connection to the being set apart. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped. And said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals. From your feet. For the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Do you know what we believe happened here? Jesus showed up. We believe this is a a before his birth appearance of Jesus. And we believe that because anytime a person bows down before an angel, what does the angel say? Stand up. I'm not the one to be worshiped. But, but do you know what this, this angel says, this, this commander of the Lord's army? He says, the place you're standing is holy. Can you hear the echoes of Moses in this at the burning bush? That he was on holy ground. There, there is really a sense, even as we gather on Sundays, that to be in God's presence together is a holy experience, isn't it? But, but what, what, a, what a powerful moment as God is about to lead his people into Jericho or, or around Jericho to have Jesus show up in his glory. The commander of the Lord's armies. And we don't often think of Jesus this way because we think about him what? In the manger and, and as, the, as the healer. We think about him teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. We think about him through his, his earthly ministry. But you know there is a day coming when we will all see Jesus as the commander of God's armies. Revelation 19 and 20 tell us that. So Jesus shows up. And this leads to chapter 6, a story of incredible victory. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. They, they battened down the hatches. I, I kind of imagine what it would have been like to live in Western Europe during World War II as the German forces swept across Europe, that, that sense of um, 
what was coming. And it seems that that's where the people of Jericho were. They, they could see that something was about to happen. And the Lord says to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand. With its king and mighty men of valor, you shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for seven days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horns, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. The, the little translation is there, under itself, it will collapse. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, go forward. It's part of where our forward by faith idea comes from. March around the city and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. We see that this battle is going to be led by a victorious leader. God himself has come up with the plan, hasn't he? It's a victorious plan, although certainly not an orthodox one. Certainly not an expected one. And maybe we've heard this story so many times that we're kind of used to this. But, but the fact that God basically said to them, you march around the city and I'll do the work. I'll take care of it. And don't, and don't miss the little pictures that are in there, Right? Well, what's part of the march around the city? The Ark of the Covenant, what does that symbolize? The presence of God. I was just talking to Rui today. Apparently there's a life-size, where's Rui? Hey, Rui. Rui said there's a life-size uh, replica of the tabernacle, the Jewish tabernacle at 90th and Redwood. Is that what you said? Um, I think it's just here for the weekend or something like that. Uh, but in the middle of the tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant. It symbolized God's presence, right, with his people. Um, his, his glory would dwell around it, and it was, a, it was a remarkable thing. And so God's presence is going with his people. The, the armies of the Lord, the 600,000 or so men are leading, the people are going. But what are they doing? They're blowing trumpets. In a way, it's almost like this is both a battle march and a victory march at the same time. It's as if the end is inevitable. And I, and I wonder what the people of Jericho thought as the people of Israel marched around one time went back to their tents. Second time, back to their tents. Third time, back to their tents. I wonder if there was this growing sense of like, what happens next? This was God's plan. And God's people obey him, right? There's a victorious march. They did just, and just as Joshua had commanded the people, that's what they did. Verse nine tells us the armed people were walking before the priests. The guard was walking before the ark while the trumpets blew continually. So this was not a silent march. I think sometimes we think it's silent. The trumpets were blowing, but nobody was saying anything. Verse 12, then Joshua rose early in the morning and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them. The rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. The second day they marched around the city once, returned to camp, so they did for six days. On the seventh day they rose early, and at the dawn of day, or at the dawn of day, and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, look at this phrase, for the Lord has given you 
the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Then there's a, a little bit about Rahab. Look at verse 19 or verse 20. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the shout of the trump, heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat. So the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. This is an incredible day. This is the first of 31 cities that the people of Israel will conquer in the promised land. But it's an unforgettable one, isn't it? That God had set out a plan, God, they had faithfully obeyed and followed exactly what God said, and God showed up powerfully. Are there areas in your life where you're praying, desiring that God would show up? That, that you're like, this is, this is a Jericho. Like, the wall is so big, so, so impossible, that we're not able for this. By the way, God's great at putting us in places we're not able for so that he can show up and so he can get the glory. And I, and I think probably the greatest shout in the history of human history to this point is Jesus on the cross, isn't it? When he cries with a loud voice, it is finished. We read about that from 1 Corinthians 15. And, and all of a sudden, bigger enemies than Jericho, bigger problems than other people, bigger problems than whatever you can think about in your own life, collapse. Because Jesus has conquered sin and death. This is a victorious moment. It's God's victory. Make no mistakes about that. And by the way, when God works powerfully in any place, in your own life, in a community, it's about what God has done. And isn't it neat how he works in such a way that he gets the glory? When Gideon is corralling all these guys, he's got a pretty good army, and God's like, gotta be smaller. Gotta be smaller. And then it gets smaller, and Gideon's like, okay, that's good. And God's like, nope, gotta get smaller. <laughs> Takes it all the way down to 300 people against this huge army. By the way, interesting, God encourages Gideon's faith, a lot like we saw last week in Joshua. And then God shows up and gives a victory. It's how God works. He wants the glory. He doesn't want any of us going, man, didn't we do a great job at this? Victory comes from the Lord. But there's another side to this story, isn't there? See, when I think about this story, I think about two passages. Psalm 1 says this, that the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Matthew 7, 13 and 14 says, Enter by the narrow gate. These are the words of Jesus. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. It's impossible to miss as we read a verse like chapter 7 or, or verse 16, shout for the Lord has given you the city, what verse 17 says, in the city, and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Verse 18, but you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all, all the silver and the gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. Verse 21, then they devoted all in the city to destruction, 
both men and women, young and old, oxen and sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. This is a story of great victory, and it's also a story of dramatic destruction. Authorized by God himself, right? In fact, I was reading um, uh, a kind of grad-level paper this week that started with this statement. The Old Testament command to destroy every breathing thing within the cities of the promised land has long been a problem for those who seek to understand God. In some cases, this has become welcome fodder for those who desire to question the credibility of the Bible, while for others, it just creates an ethical gap that is simply too far to cross. And people ask this question, how could God do this? It's a powerful moment, isn't it? The thought that those walls collapse and that God himself has said, now wipe out everyone and everything, young and old, men and women, even the animals. That ought to cause us to stop a little, shouldn't it? And by the way, when, if and when someone asks you a question like that, listen, because that's a deep question, isn't it? How could God devote a whole city and ultimately more cities, as we read the story of Joshua, to destruction? I want to set the stage for you appropriately. The people who occupied the land of Canaan were descendants of Abraham's grandson, Canaan. You can read about that in Genesis chapter 10. And here's the interesting thing. We don't have to guess about what happened there. There's actually been a vast amount of uh, archaeological stuff that's been discovered in that area of the world. And much of it, we believe, dates back to 14 or 1500 BC, which is when this event occurred. So we don't have to guess what was happening in this place at this time. It's actually the reason I brought the big book up. Um, so this is a Bible dictionary. If you ever want a, res a good resource for things like this, this is one. But here's what it tells us. In the discovery of all these tablets and all this religious writing, it tells us this. It gives us a full description of the Canaanite gods and their world. And, and, and we learn this. Canaanite fertility cults are seen to be more base than elsewhere in the ancient world. The God-worshipping faith of the Hebrews was continually in peril of contamination from the lewd nature worship with immoral gods, prostitute goddesses, serpents, cultic doves, and bulls. This was the religion of this place. El, the head of the gods, was the hero of sordid escapades and crimes. He was a bloody tyrant who dethroned his father, murdered his favorite son, and decapitated his own daughter. Despite these enormous crimes, El was worshipped as the father of years, the father of man, and the source of all the other gods. Baal, a familiar name probably to you, the widely revered Canaanite deity, was the son of El and dominated their religion. He was the god of thunder, whose voice reverberated through the heavens in the storm. He is pictured in this archaeological writing, brandishing a mace in his right hand and holding in his left hand a stylized thunderbolt. The three goddesses of their religion were Anath, Astard, and Asherah, who were all three patronesses of sex and war. Other Canaanite deities were Mot, the god of death, Reshep, the god of pestilence, Shulman, the god of health, Kosher, the god of arts and crafts, these Canaanite cults were utterly immoral, decadent, 
and corrupt. And this sort of godless evil had been going on in this place for hundreds of years. We we believe from what we read about Abraham to when we come to here, we're talking about at least, we know, 400 years, if not more, of history. So generation after generation defies, dishonors, rebels against the God of heaven. And do you know what God does? The same thing he does for our nation. He waits. He's patient. He lets time go by. But do you know what we know about the God of the Bible, about the one we believe is the one true God? He is a God who by no means clears the guilty. Hebrews tells us that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so while you could pick up this story in Joshua chapter six and read it as a one-off, how could God act so rashly? I just want to assure you, God is never rash. God never reacts like a frustrated parent does sometimes. God is patient, but God is holy. And I think we struggle sometimes with the judgment of God. And by the way, the Bible pulls no punches on the seriousness of the judgment of God. We struggle sometimes, and and we probably even ask the wrong question. Instead of how could God do this, sometimes I wonder how could God wait so long? Have you ever looked around at a nation who worships violence and sexuality, is grossly immoral, doesn't treasure the life of the unborn or frankly the lives of the born, and think how could God wait so long? We struggle with God's judgment probably because of a few reasons. One, we lack a proper awe of the holiness of God. Habakkuk chapter chapter 1 verse 13 says, God is too pure to look on sin. Do you know our sin is upsetting to God every single day? And he's perfectly holy. And, And all he's done for his creation is give us good and provide for us. He sends the rain. He provides our food. He cares for this universe so it doesn't spin out of control. He's holy. We lack a proper perspective about human sin. Without God, we are all separated from and hostile towards him, doing evil deeds, Colossians 1 tells us. We are people prone to disobedience and children of wrath, Ephesians 2 says. Whose wrath? God's wrath. We lack a proper appreciation of God's patience. 2 Peter chapter 3 says that God doesn't fail to deliver on his promise, but he's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And we lack a proper fear of his judgment. I already touched on Hebrews 10.31 that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. One of our men's meetups has been reading through the book of Revelation, and while that book can be overwhelming and complex and have imagery that we can't totally wrap our minds around. One thing is sure, God will be victorious. And just like Psalm 1 says, if you bow before him and you follow him, the future is certain. And if you reject him and you oppose him, the future is also certain. This is hard for us because we're numbed by an age of accepting love, complete tolerance, and welcomed pluralism where almost any type of judgment is frowned upon. You don't know. Who are you? I'll tell you who the judge is. It's not me or you. It's the perfect, 
and holy and just God of the universe. He's the judge. This is also painful for us to wrap our minds around because it involves people we know and love. It might even involve you this morning. See, sitting here in a church meeting is no guarantee that you have submitted your life to God, that you have bowed before him, that you have turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus. It just means you're sitting in a chair in Gospel Hope Church at 1023 on a Sunday morning. See, this story of Jericho is a story that should cause us to both cheer and to shudder. It should cause us to cry and to pray. But the one to blame is not God. The one to blame is us, sinners who oppose a holy God. You see, I'm glad I wasn't in Jericho that day. Yep, but there is a day coming. A day Revelation tells us when the small and the great will stand before God. I wanna finish with three pictures this morning. This is the first, it's of a trumpet. Did you notice on the journey around Jericho the ongoing noise of the trumpet? Now we think about a trumpet, right? My brother played trumpet for a little bit. We think about taps or something that gets played from a trumpet. It's a bit more of a Jewish shofar, I think is what it's called. And I think I've heard them played once or twice, but I'm not really familiar with this sound. I think it's what we're more likely to hear one day. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says it this way if you want to turn there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If not, you can just listen. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 16. For the Lord himself, Jesus himself, will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so will we always be with the Lord. Revelation 19. I want to read this because I, I just think it's so powerful. Such a good reminder when we're worried about the cares of this life, which are real. Then I saw heaven opened, Revelation 19 says, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. This is Christ. This is Jesus in his glory as he comes as king. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The day that trumpet sounds will be an incredible day. If Jesus is your Savior, if you've given him his life or your life, that will be a day of victory. But if you have not, that is a day to be feared. The second picture is of a fishing net. That's why I find this picture interesting. Do you know the word in Joshua that gets repeated, devoted for destruction? It's actually uh, some, in some places called the ban. It's sometimes translated accursed. It has the idea of the destiny of anyone who opposes God. But do you know how it's literally translated? As the spreading of a net. In fact, four or five times in the Old Testament, that exact word is translated that way. It's a picture. And you know what the picture is? That God spreads his net. And just as the fish under the water may not know that their end is coming, it is certainly coming. 
So just as the trumpet reminds us that Jesus is coming, the net reminds us that God's judgment is coming. But isn't it amazing in the story of Jericho that it ends with a moment of grace? That Rahab, a woman whose life said that she was far from God, actually believed. She came to faith in the one true God and God saved her and he saved her whole family. And, and the spies asked her to hang a scarlet cord out of her window so that they would know where she lived and that they'd be able to rescue and save her. It's an amazing picture of God's grace. Can I tell you, as dire as the judgment of God is, and I cannot describe it to you in a way that makes it dire enough, the grace of God is available. The rescue of God is available in Jesus. We're, we're gonna remember that he hung and he died and he, his body was broken and his blood was shed for you. But if you turn from him and go your own way, if you reject and follow some other false religion, there is a day coming. God's grace is available. And I'll tell you what's hard as a pastor, as your friend, some of you I know very well, some of you I don't know very well. I'll tell you what's hard. Nobody in this room can make you receive the grace of God. I can't even tell in this room today how many of you have trusted in Jesus. I think I know, but I'm just a human being. I don't see your heart. God sees your heart, but God's grace is always extended. He's patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all should turn to him. And it's, it's powerful in this story to see the victory to see the destruction, and to see the grace. Let's pray together. God, we praise you this morning for who you are in, in all your character, in all your complexity. You are the God of grace and patience and mercy. You will forgive anyone who confesses their sins and calls on you. Anyone who puts their faith in Jesus, Romans 10 tells us, that whether it's somebody from one background or another, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If we'll confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that you've raised him from the dead, we will be saved. So God, we praise you for your grace. We praise you for the victory that we see here. Or some of us are hanging on by a thread, it seems like, and that thread seems to be breaking. But we know that in Christ, sin and death have been defeated, and as we were reminded from Romans, you will not withhold any good thing. And God, we pray in the room this size are certainly likely some, many, who are still under that net of your judgment. They're hanging by a thread, as it were, eternally. God, would you reach out in your grace and rescue them today? God, would they come to you ready to receive your forgiveness and the free gift of grace from Jesus? Thank you for your word that tells us the truth as it is. And we pray for our friends, our neighbors, our family who are far from you, that you would save them. Please save them today. Please rescue them. Please. God, this is serious stuff, but it's good stuff. We thank you for your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.